Okay, Jesse, last week's New Orleans story was truly devastating. What's the tale this time? Nearly a decade after a woman was heralded a hero for protecting her children during an alleged home invasion, the authorities look a little closer into the case and find that all might not be as it seemed. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about manipulation, madness, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Okay, first off, I got to tell you, I love all you beautiful people. We had some really nice reviews this week. And as you know, I'm a sucker for that. <laughs> you love a review. Also, I do love a review when they're nice, especially. <laughs> also, we had so much fun this week. I got to see Andy in New York City. She is here for work. So she has had very scant time. She's even recording in a hotel right now. But it was great to see you. Yeah, I miss you already. It's like you weren't even here. <laughs> I was there for like, what, 15 hours? Like 15 minutes. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Every hour away from you, Andrea, is a sadness. And I'm, I'm coming off of a long trade show day. Yeah. So I think that we should just jump right into the story. We don't want to make your day any longer One, than it needs to be here. 100%. <laughs> Ooh, but yes, before I get started, I have to tell you guys that this was a listener request from Kim S. And Kim, girl. You got me twisted with this case, I got to tell you. <laughs> uh -oh. this, this case is so wild and so controversial in so many ways. The sources that I used were Beautifully Cruel by M. William Phelps, which is a great book. And we've definitely used his books for, he's written like 40 books, I'm pretty sure. And he's the host and writer of Paper Towns which is a very popular podcast. I used ID show Fatal Vows. And I also used the Tracy Richter episode of the YouTube show, The Chapter, and some various other articles and Facebook pages, which we will get into as I mentioned them. Exciting that he has 40 books, though. Do I see you doing more in the future? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we've definitely used more than one, but the one that is sticking out in my mind was the Double Lives in Pleasant Valley, the one mm -hmm. that was kind of like my hometown mm -hmm. case. He wrote that one as well. Okay. Yeah. And you would recognize him too, because he has been like a talking head on almost all of like these investigation discovery shows. Like if you saw him by sight, you'd actually know him. Okay, cool. So yeah, he got real deep with this case too. We are going to get into it because the woman at the center of this is really something else. It's, I don't even know what to say, so I'm just gonna get right into it. In October 2002, the Montel Williams show aired an episode called True Crime, An Invitation to Kill. A striking brunette mother of three named Tracy and her handsome Australian husband, Michael, detailed a horrific home invasion in which Tracy fought off two male attackers to protect her children. Michael had been away on a business trip that night while Tracy began to prepare to bathe her youngest, a one-year-old baby girl. Suddenly, two men broke into her house. Tracy ran to thrust the baby into a room with her two older sons, 
and then was strangled from behind, causing her to momentarily pass out. Um, Terrifying. So scary. When she came to, she was miraculously able to make her way to the gun safe in her bedroom where she recovered two weapons and shot one of the men as he advanced upon her. The young man, a troubled 20-year-old neighbor of the Robertses named Dustin Weedy, was dead. Tracy spoke of her harrowing tale of strength and survival as the audience cheered. At the conclusion, Montel Williams told Tracy, I applaud you. The case was justifiable homicide in his opinion, and he viewed Tracy as a hero for protecting her family. It was clear that the audience agreed, as did most of the viewers at home. But for the townspeople of early Iowa, and especially for the Weedy family, there were lots of questions left unanswered. Questions that were now burned into DCI, that's Department of Criminal Investigation, state detective Trent Valletta's mind as he reviewed the cold case nearly a decade later. The second assailant had never been found, and lots of Tracy's story didn't add up. Especially how did Dustin Weedy end up getting shot nine times, at least three in the back of his head execution style. What? Uh Uh-huh. The crime scene photo haunted Trent. So when a 32-year-old attorney named Ben Smith took over as the prosecutor for Sac County, Iowa, Trent floated the idea of looking into finally prosecuting the case. Ben had heard about the shooting, of course, everyone in that corner of Iowa had, but he had assumed it was a done deal like most of the other residents. Tracy shot in self-defense, case closed. However, when Trent Folletta sent him the graphic crime scene photo of the back of Dustin's head, Ben was shook. Valletta included a note. She claims she did this under stressful circumstances. Think about that this weekend. And Ben did think about it. And then he thought about it some more. And eventually, Ben was dragged down a rabbit hole of an investigation with the power to make or break his career. So we are going to start by getting into a little bit of the renewed investigation, and then we're going to go back in time and talk more about Tracy. So it's a little bit of a different format than I usually do. Okay. So he began going through old and recent interviews with Tracy, as well as other evidence in the case file. The first thing that seemed implausible was that Tracy had managed to break away after being strangled to near unconsciousness or unconsciousness, as she changed her story several times. Then she managed to open a locked gun safe and pumped 11 rounds from two separate guns into an assailant during a frenzied attack and managed to not only land nine of those shots directly, but also do it over her shoulder like Annie Oakley. I mean, skilled gunswoman. And that's the thing, though, is that she said in various interviews that she wasn't actually a skilled gunwoman. In fact, she was kind of afraid of guns. So that was an interesting point of the case. And there's also this, that if she had in fact fired like that, like if you're shooting over your shoulders, the gun's directly next to your head, it would have blown her eardrum out or she would have at least suffered some major damage. Seeing as the guns were also really big, we're talking a 40 caliber Beretta and a 357 Strom Ruger and Co. revolver. Wow. But at the medical examination, no such damage was apparent. Was there someone else there? So... Basically, she said there was two male assailants, one, of course, being Dustin Weedy, who ended up shot to death. Yeah. 
The only other people in the house were her 11-year-old son, Bert, and her two younger children, who at the time was a toddler boy and the one-year-old girl. Okay. So there's no damage to her eardrum or any flash on her face that would have been apparent from shooting a gun so close to her cheek. Okay. The other thing is that when Tracy was interviewed from her hospital bed after the alleged attack, she spent the majority of the time talking about her estranged ex-husband. At this point in time, she was married to husband number two, Michael Roberts, the Australian entrepreneur. Dr. John Pittman was her first husband and the father of her eldest son, Bert. At the time of the home invasion, Tracy was in a bitter custody battle with John. So upon reviewing the case file, Trent thinks it's really interesting that this woman who just survived a very gnarly and terrifying home invasion is spending most of her time for some reason talking about her ex who was abusive and violent. Yeah. When also they're in Iowa, her ex is in Chicago. He is proven to be in Chicago. He can't have anything to do with this, right? What's even more interesting is that there's this piece of evidence that Tracy allegedly knew nothing about. In Dustin's car, which had been parked in the Roberts's driveway in open sight, which is also curious for a home invasion. Yeah. The police had recovered an old computer belonging to the Roberts's and a bright pink notebook. This notebook was allegedly a journal of Dustin Wheaties that contained essentially a confession and pointed to a potential motive and mastermind. Now, also, this journal is not really like a full diary or journal. It only has six pages written on it. And two of those pages were pretty much blank. So it's really only four pages of content. Okay. It said that Dustin had met a man named, quote, JP, ostensibly standing for John Pittman, Tracy's first husband, who wished for him to keep an eye on his wife, who he was divorcing. The note continued that Dustin knew nothing for this mysterious fellow, though I strive to learn all I can, he wrote. A side note claimed that JP was some sort of doctor from Williamsburg, Virginia, who wanted to be a shrink, but his family had disapproved. And then he wrote JP equals white male in 40s with a thing for strippers and hookers, Hmm. slightly overweight, tortures victims in their own homes. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So this is very disturbing. It goes on to say, JP wants me to get slash force his ex, TR, which could stand for her current name, Tracy Roberts, or perhaps her maiden name, Tracy Richter, to kill her son, Bert, and then commit suicide. The single four-page entry that was written in a diary style went on to say that JP had masterminded the hit and arranged for Dustin to be hired as a hitman through his Chicago attorney, Stephen Comey. Yeah. (laughs) Andy's face says it all. She's just looking at me in bewildered silence right now. I'm bewildered. Yeah, so this is completely bizarre, of course. Dustin Weedy was a young man who had considerable learning and emotional disabilities, who was considered special needs. Why would a high-powered attorney have him hired as a hitman in the middle of a bitter custody dispute? It sounds so messy. It's really messy, and it's 
very, very far out. Yeah. I mean, if you're in Chicago and you're a high-powered attorney, I think you can find a better hitman than a neighbor kid who has been known to be special needs, you know? Yeah. Naturally, the police check out the lead and there's absolutely no connection whatsoever between Dustin and John or his attorney. Okay. Even more curious is that in an email to Trent Valletta nearly a decade later, Tracy described her ex in a similar fashion to the journal she had allegedly never seen, claiming her ex was a plastic surgeon from Virginia who wanted to be a shrink, but his family had disapproved. So Trent's like, okay, she must have written this journal, right? But Dustin's mother, Mona, had confirmed that the handwriting was actually Dustin's. Ooh, yeah, plot twist. So at this point, Trent's like, I just don't think there's any way that he wrote this of his own volition. And there's absolutely no way to substantiate what was written in that journal. So he's yeah. like, you know what? I think Tracy must have coached or compelled Dustin to write what she wanted him to write somehow. Trent knows in his bones that Tracy had killed a young man in cold blood and gotten away with it. But he actually had a hard time convincing prosecutor Ben Smith to go for the case right away. So Ben was a brand new prosecutor and he had actually never tried a case. Ben's predecessor hadn't believed that the case was a winner. And as a result, he had chosen not to prosecute to maintain his record. Whoa. Ben, as this is his very first potential case as the Sac County prosecutor, was facing an uphill battle, one that even a seasoned DA didn't want to take on. Ben had doubts about the convoluted case and told Trent so. Well, look, Ben, Trent said, why don't you call Mona Weedy and tell her that it's not worth it, that it's too hard for you to prosecute? Ooh. <laughs> I didn't know you yeah. could opt out for that reason. For any number of reasons, I think that you can choose not to prosecute a case if you don't think there's enough evidence. Okay. You know, I don't think that most people will say I'm doing this because there's not enough to win. I think that most uh, DAs or prosecutors would say um, there's not enough evidence to support this. It would be a loser case, you know? Yeah. Even if there's a gut feeling that she did it, it was a very, very convoluted case. And I think also people wanted to believe that if somebody breaks into your home, you have the right to protect yourself and your family, you know? Totally. You know, that is a way more sellable storyline to a jury of your peers that you were being attacked and your children were in the home and you fought for your life than what she framed this guy for what reason, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I can understand why maybe the previous prosecutor didn't go for the case, but it is a shame, you know? So basically, Trent had Ben's number because he was in after this. He's like, okay, we're going to do this. I refuse to let a murderer go unpunished. But he did need more information. They needed more than what they just had. In the near decades since the killing, Michael and Tracy Roberts had gotten divorced as well. And in the new investigation, Tracy was now attempting to pin the home invasion murder for hire plot on husband number two. Oh, my God. Yep, going so far in some emails to Trent Valletta to speculate that maybe Michael had set it up for insurance money, or even more strangely, perhaps Michael and Dustin were closeted gay lovers. Wow. That was not true. Not even remotely true. To add more fuel to the fire, by the time the renewed investigation began, Tracy was now engaged to a new man and had obtained a driver's license and passport under the name... 
Sophie Corinna Therese Baronin von Richterhausen Edwards. You're lying. There is so many parts of today's case that you are going to tell me I'm lying. If you guys are playing a drinking game at home, just get ready <laughs> because Andy's not going to believe half of the shit because it's unbelievable. <laughs> okay, so they're like, okay, so she just changed her name in a to Epic, an Epic new one, to be honest. I mean, if you're going to change your name, you might as well add 17 names. Why not? They also, she was reportedly like, now living in Omaha, Nebraska, and she owned a house cleaning business and she was speaking in a English accent to people for some reason. If you're going to change your name, you might as well change your accent as well. Yeah, I mean, might as well, right? Just do the whole damn thing. So yeah, it was revealed that Tracy had actually falsified court records in order to obtain her new documents, which of course is a federal offense. More disturbing than that though was the belief that Sophie a.k.a. Tracy, was perhaps intending to flee the country and live somewhere else under her new assumed name. DCI agent Valletta and prosecutor Ben Smith would have to continue digging for a smoking gun and fast. They decided to re-interview a woman named Mary Higgins, who had been a close friend of Tracy's at the time of the home invasion. Back in 2001, Mary had been loath to give the detectives any information that could shed a poor light on her friend. Now, nearly 10 years later, it seemed some things had changed, which is exactly why it's smart to re-interview on cold cases. After any number of years, people can divorce, friends can fall out, and they might not be so protective and closed-mouthed about their ex-friend or lover's situation anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in 2011, Mary said she was frightened by Tracy. You mean Sophie. (laughs) Yes, Sophie. Sophie, Corinna, Therese, Baronin, von Richtenhauser, Edwards. First, Mary said she thought it was odd that Tracy and Michael left for Australia so soon after the home invasion. Authorities believed that this was done on purpose so Tracy would have plenty of time to coach then 11-year-old Bert on what to say to the authorities. And when she returned, she was surprised to find, according to Mary Higgins, she was like, I don't, I don't know why they haven't arrested my ex, Dr. Pittman. And Mary was kind of taken aback by this. She was like, why would you assume that your ex had anything to do with this other than maybe Dustin and an accomplice were going to rob you or something, you know? Yep. Like it's, it doesn't make sense that your ex would be involved in this. So Tracy at that point was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. There's evidence in this case that ties my ex-husband to this hit. She then explained to Mary that the police had a notebook of Dustin's that outlined his connection to Dr. Pittman and then quoted the contents of the journal nearly verbatim. But here's the thing. The cops hadn't released any information about the journal to the public, and they certainly hadn't told Tracy or Mary any of this. Yeah! Tracy... (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh Uh-oh. Tracy had given herself away. Only the person who coached Dustin Weedy could have possibly known the contents of that journal, or even that it even existed. Trent and Ben felt like this new revelation was the final piece of the complex puzzle that was the case and decided to move forward with an arrest. The other pieces, of course, being the three direct shots to the back of Dustin's head, her and Bert's inconsistent statements, and her emails to Trent that proved that she knew 
about the contents of the journal. Because remember, she said something weirdly similar to the journal to Trent as well. Yep. And lastly, she had a insane history of bizarre past behavior that was basically criminal. So let's talk about Tracy's past behavior. And then, Andrea, you tell me if you think she's guilty of murder. And also, I just have to tell you, potentially setting in motion the events that took an additional life. Tracy Ann Richter was born in 1966 in Chicago to a policeman father, Bernard, and her mother, Anna. She was a pretty and bright student who had a high IQ and accomplished near-perfect SAT scores. Tracy went on to become a radiographer, which is kind of like an x-ray technologist who operates and analyzes x-rays, MRIs, and other medical imaging systems. So cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And she was working in this capacity at a super young age already. So she was working as a radiologist at the age of 20 at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago when she met John Pittman in 1986. The 30-year-old John was a fourth-year medical student and completely beguiled with the gorgeous 20-year-old who sported a perfect 80s bouffant of brunette hair and a gorgeous face. John claimed their relationship moved fast with the two sleeping together on the first date. And then Tracy left a note telling him that she was falling in love with him by date three. However, Tracy later countered that they absolutely did not sleep together on date one. She said it was an impossibility because she was still living with her parents and went home to their house that night. And she said as far as that whole love note saying that she was falling in love with him, she left him a note that said, love Tracy. So right from the jump off, we are getting very, very different accounts of this relationship. And it's only going to get weirder and farther apart. Oh, no. Yeah. John would later say that Tracy seemed to anticipate all of his needs and desires and expressed deep interest in his interest. She seemed almost too good to be true. We know what that means. It's probably not true. It's probably not true. When John left to continue his medical training in Virginia, he asked Tracy to come with him. And she agreed, kind of. She did this very manipulative backpedaling thing where she'd agree and say she loved him and she was coming with him and then she changed her mind. And it kind of just put John on edge and forced him into a position where he basically was like begging her to come with him, you know? Okay. Yeah. Even when she did finally agree and then moved, like the first night that they were there, she threatened to leave and said she was going back. And and this was like a pattern. So, you know, every time they fought, she would say she's like just taking off. She's leaving him. He'd beg her to come back. She also sought to isolate him from his friends and family by alienating his loved ones and then forcing John to pick her side. So she would essentially get into a fight with some of his friends And then when, you know, the friend was obviously like, whoa, your girlfriend's being a huge fucking dick to me. She'd be like, are you going to let them say that about me? You're going to choose them over me? How dare you? You know, like everyone knows relationships like this in their life personally. Exactly. And then the sad part is that you end up losing deep friendships. You end up losing, you know, family members because when somebody's in this deep with a gaslighter, it's kind of hard to see beyond it, you know? It's, as Brittany says, toxic. That's a good one. I can't believe you haven't used that one yet. (laughs) Color me impressed, Andrea. Good job. John was placed at a University of Colorado hospital for his residency and once again asked Tracy to come with him. 
This time, she straight up refused and told him that she wanted to move back to Chicago to be near her family. At this point, John was like, that's fine. I totally understand. He's like, look, let's pack things up. I have to basically drive through Chicago uh, to get to Colorado. So I will drop you and your things off. We'll end this amicably. Somehow, along the way, he must have decided that he couldn't live without her because he proposed on this road trip that they were supposed to be breaking up. What? Where? It doesn't say. I didn't know exactly where, but somewhere from when they left to when they arrived in Chicago to visit her family, they were engaged. So neither family was overly delighted with this match, but the couple were married in August of 1988, nonetheless, and they adopted three dogs and two cats. Oh my God. <laughs> it was just a passel of animals. I guess full house for sure. I guess um, John Pittman was like a super animal person. John and Tracy had a contentious marriage almost immediately. Oh no. They didn't really have a honeymoon period, to be honest, you know? Yeah. And I also think that we can chalk a little bit up to this being that Tracy is very young. And as smart as she seems, as intelligent and mature as she comes across sometimes, she's still only 22 at this point when she's getting married. Yeah, no, I could not imagine. Yeah, it's a lot. And I think she had also put her career on hold while she was like kind of following him around from like fellowship to residency, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, I think that she was at home. I think that she was bored. As anyone who has ever done a medical residency knows, you're working insanely long hours. I personally don't know that from personal experience, but I have watched Grey's Anatomy and that (laughs) tells me that they worked a lot as residents. But they always have a lot of time for boning as well. Yeah, but they have to do it in the hospital because they're technically still yeah. like on call. <laughs> and so John reported that Tracy was prone to fly into rages and cut him down verbally with shocking cruelty. Tracy countered that she was forced to walk on eggshells throughout the marriage and that it was lacking in sex or affection. Despite all of this, when Tracy found out she was pregnant in the spring of 1989, the couple was tentatively excited. Maybe a baby was exactly what they needed to heal their fraught relationship. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go on and say a big old nope on mm. that one. <laughs> But before Tracy gave birth, John got some bad news. In December of 1989, someone had gotten hold of John's parents' credit card, charged expensive furniture items, and shipped them to the Pittman's Vale vacation condo. But just as soon as they were delivered to that location, a second truck pulled up, snatched all of the boxes, and took them to an undisclosed location where they couldn't be recovered or returned. That's crazy. Crazy. The Pittmans were completely mystified. And they were out over $15,000, which is more like thirty-three grand in today's money. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And they had never had a really good relationship with Tracy. So they were surprised when she, who was at this point seven months pregnant, volunteered to help them. She was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible, guys. I'm going to call the credit card company. I'll be your liaison with the police. Like, I don't want this to stress you out. Like, I'll take care of it. So they're like, that's weird. She's never been helpful before. 
So if Tracy was trying to control the situation, she failed. The Pittmans brought in a private detective and it appeared after he did this entire investigation that Tracy was running a scam with a local decorator. She had basically at some family visit gotten her hands on the credit card number and had worked with this like local decorator to order all of this furniture. You mean local scam artist? Yeah. By the time that this was revealed in April of 99, however, Tracy had already given birth to the couple's only child, Bert, and John didn't want to rock the boat. When he gently confronted her, Tracy became belligerent and enraged and forced John to cut off contact with his parents for even suggesting it. It was never definitively proven, and Tracy was never formally charged with a crime. It would take John Pittman years to repair the relationship with his parents. Yikes. Yeah, so even though she was never charged with a crime, both the private investigator and the police still believed that it was her. I'm not sure how they resolved it. I'm not sure if, like, you know— the credit card company paid them back or they had insurance or something. For whatever reason, they let it drop. Okay. By 1991, the marriage was in tatters. Bert gave the couple no respite from the constant fighting. John claimed Tracy became emotionally and physically abusive, pushing and striking him and attempting to goad him into physically retaliating against her. Whoa. Tracy claimed John's parents were turning him against her and that she only hit him once, a slap in the face for an extremely cruel comment, she said. Tracy decided to turn her rage into seeking the attention of other men. In 1991, she got breast implants and began to go out and meet other guys. Yeah, she got like a little mommy makeover there. According to Monica, a babysitter for Bert and friend of Tracy's, Tracy had several dalliances with men, including one in which she got pregnant and had a subsequent abortion. Monica also confided that to get back at John one time, she sold his most beloved dog while he was at work and later told him the dog had been hit by a car. That's bad. Can you? That's really, really bad. That's really bad. Like, I don't even know how you think of something like that. That's really bad. So yeah, the fights were increasing in intensity. One blow up resulted in Tracy shooting a hole through the ceiling of their bedroom. Oh my God. What kind of gun was that with? I don't know. They probably said um, in the book, but I did not write it down. I think that nobody should be giving this woman guns, to be honest. And things just continued to go from bad to worse. Tracy continued to have affairs and burn through office jobs. And William Phelps wrote in his book, Each job Tracy took on always turned into a drama and ended with her leaving or being fired on a note of controversy, John later said in a report. She'd start a new job and the people in the office would warm up to her. Then she'd do something inexplicable, like become belligerent with patients or get an attitude with her boss. While working for one doctor, she actually took home patient claim forms, altered them, and had patient benefits. Yet another fraudulent act on her part sent to her home where she cashed the checks. Oh, my God. She would come up with all sorts of excuses why she missed work. Accidents that never occurred, Bert being ill, John not allowing her. Once Tracy drew blood herself and changing her name and birth date, sent it in for an HIV and pregnancy test. 
When she got caught, once again turning the tables, she claimed she did it because she was scared of the affairs her husband was having. Which I get the HIV part, but I don't think your husband having sex with other women will make you pregnant. His sperm jumped (laughs) from his clothing onto my vagina. That happens all the time. Okay, so around this time, she also asked John to raise the premiums on their life insurance policies. Mm, Red flag. Red flag on the field. So John is not a dummy. So he got extremely concerned by this. And he not only did not raise the premiums, he immediately hired a private investigator to see what his wife was up to. Because he was like, I'm pretty sure she's cheating on me. And that's on the low end. On the high end, I feel like she might be plotting to kill me. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. When he described the situation to the PI, the PI was immediately alarmed enough to suggest that he began surveillance on Tracy right away. So John agreed. Around this time, they were planning a move from Colorado back to Chicago, where John was going to start a fellowship. And so... Basically, John and Tracy sent Bert ahead. Okay. And he was living with Tracy's parents for a little while while they got their affairs in order and like sold the house and moved out and all of that stuff. Okay. So this is the period in which the PI is tailing Tracy. And what he found shocked John. Tracy was spending overnights while John worked at the hospital with multiple other men. And as if that wasn't bad enough, one particular incident shook him to his core. Tracy had been observed by the PI hanging out with some rough guys from the wrong side of the track. And she had asked John if she could take his prescription pad to prescribe steroids because she basically was like, Tracy always had some money-making scheme going on and she had met all of these guys like at a gym or something who wanted roids. And he was like, "Uh, absolutely not. I could lose my license for that. Are you insane? No. So. I'm not sure if these were the same types of guys, like these like big bulky guys who are trying to get steroids or even sell steroids. But she had made some friend group with these guys that were just a little rough around the edges. And one night, Tracy asked him to meet her at their apartment. She's like, come home. I want to have a surprise dinner for you. I really want to get our relationship back on track. So the PI called him after he'd gotten off the phone and asked him where he was. And John said, hey, I'm just going home to meet Tracy. We're actually kind of getting along. The PI was like, do not go home. Do not go home. I am tailing Tracy right now. And I know she called you, but she's actually headed in the absolute opposite direction of your apartment. And there's a bunch of weird guys waiting for you at your own apartment. Holy shit. Uh Uh-huh. So John did not go home that night. He went to a hotel and he moved to Chicago ASAP after the incident where he did not move into the like planned home they had as a family. He got his own apartment. Where's the baby though? Where's Bert? Bert is right now with Tracy's parents. Okay, good. So prosecutor Ben Smith later discovered that Tracy had forged John's signature on a new life insurance policy and had even begun telling people that John was a drug addict. So it was Ben's belief that Tracy intended on having her quote unquote friends inject John with an overdose while she had an airtight alibi and then collect the life insurance money. Girl, that P.I. saved his life. 
He's worth his weight in gold. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. So basically, like I said, John moved to his own place and he told Tracy that he was going to separate from her. Tracy beat him to the punch by filing for divorce on June 26, 1992. Wow. The old, you can't divorce me, I'm divorcing you. Yeah. Unfortunately, this was still just the beginning of John Pittman having to deal with his dangerous soon-to-be ex-wife. The two immediately got into a super contentious custody battle for Bert. Tracy and her mother, Anna, claimed that Basically, they said at first that John was not honoring the custody agreement. He was dropping off Bert late. He was not showing up when he was supposed to. And then John noticed welts and bruises on three-year-old Bert's body. No. So, yeah. So he asked the little boy where they had come from or what happened. And he said that Bert told him that mommy did it. Oh, my God. Yeah, so naturally, he reported this to the authorities. And at this point, Tracy emphatically denied that. And she countered that Dr. John Pittman was sexually abusing Little Bert. Which side note, later in her second divorce, she said the same thing about Michael Roberts. Which it's like, oh, honey, so you picked two two husbands that are abusive pedophiles? Yeah, no. Is that what you're trying to say? So yeah, John passed a polygraph with flying colors and after considerable testing and multiple interviews, which had to be traumatic for Bert because we're talking state-appointed child psychologists. They had to do invasive medical examinations of this poor little boy, you know, to try to prove that he had been molested. After they do all of that, John was entirely 100% cleared of the allegations. Wow. What a nightmare for him and what a nightmare for Bert. Yeah, that's really sad. It's really sad. Despite this, Tracy didn't end her campaign against John. Even printing flyers. Listen, listen to this, Andy. I also have a picture of this for the Instagram. She printed flyers that said that Dr. John Pittman was a child molester, and she put them on every car in the hospital parking lot where he worked. Whoa. Yeah, like he later said, he's like, it was really terrible time in my life and nobody believed it or at least they said they didn't believe it and I could show that it was proven not correct but how do you explain that to to anyone yeah how do you explain why this is happening yeah yeah besides that your wife is crazy yeah exactly and that's I mean even that he says it's embarrassing it's embarrassing to admit that you were married to somebody that would do this to you exactly yeah because it's just so low yeah It's so low. And also both of Tracy's ex-husbands were on the fatal vows along with her mother. So we got, that was a good 45 minutes of television because you kind of got to see all the players and hear all the perspectives. Yeah. So in between all of this horrific slander, Tracy got a job working for a local dentist. So apparently she had met this guy in a hospital through a mutual friend And he immediately was taken with her. And he's like, hey, I could use some like help around the office sometimes. Would you like to work for me in a part-time basis? So she said, yes. This guy is pseudonymed Dr. Kellner. And I think you'll see why he would not want to reveal his true name after I tell you the story. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. So the dentist was immediately drawn to Tracy. She appeared beautiful. She was in great shape. She seemed intelligent. And she was also dropping major hints that she was attracted to him. What, what, kind, of, what kind of beautiful is she? 
I would say classic. I, okay. I think she's very classically beautiful. If anything, I would say she's kind of got a Sarah Palin, like during her prime vibe. Okay. Like there's like this like kind of like sexy librarian thing. Okay. So he displayed some some truly egregious judgment when Dr. Kellner began to kind of date Tracy while working with her. Uh, guys, how many times do we have to tell you? Not Don't shit move. where you eat. Not a good move. No, and I mean, I understand when you like, maybe you're working in a, a restaurant and you're in your 20s. Like, you can't help yourself. <laughs> but like, when you're a medical professional in your 30s or 40s, like, come on. Keep it together. Yeah, especially when you're the boss. Like, that's, you just can't do that. You can't do it. So yeah, while she's kind of like sleeping with him and working with him, Tracy ended up scamming him out of a computer. She basically said like his his office needed a new computer and he's like, okay, here's my credit card, go buy it. And she's like, okay, now it needs to get set up and I'll just set it up at home and then I'll bring it in. <laughs> yep. And then she also starts borrowing money from him. She started at like $200 and then it was $500 and it was $800. And eventually she's borrowing up to $1,100 at a time which is also just such an MO just to be like, start pushing the envelope. Like, can I get $200? Okay, I can. Can I get $500? You yeah. know? Yeah. Around this time, he also lent her $18,000 to buy a new car after she told him that she wrecked hers. And I don't know whether she had actually wrecked her car or not. She claimed that she just needed an advance until money came in from some stock that she was selling. <laughs> Kelsey Prees, he never got his money back. No. In her work capacity, she convinced him to sign up for a computer-generated signature to make e-filing easier. So I can understand this bit a little bit because I worked in my dad's dental office and they have to sign so many like insurance claims and stuff like that that my dad actually, for a long time, like back in the old days, had a stamp with his signature on it that we could use to like stamp his signature. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So she basically was doing that, but like an online version of that. So naturally, he he it all made sense. Like why? Like we have to do X, Y, and Z paperwork. Like we know you approve it. Like why not just have your signature so we can easily apply it to e-filing, you know? Yep. But of course, it wasn't that innocent. She used his credit card and e-signature to begin making fraudulent charges for herself including an all-expenses-paid trip to Australia where she would meet her husband, number two, Michael Roberts. Wow. Just a wow. quick trip down under. Yeah, and the craziest thing was that when he discovered this, the travel agent was like, no, you signed all the parts. Like, you completely authorized this. You can't, like, go back on it now because you're regretting, like, buying this woman the trip. And he's like, I didn't. I didn't know. And they're like, is this your signature? And he's like, yes, but not really. And they're like, well, it's your signature. Sorry, bub. <laughs> okay, so sadly for Dr. Kellner, Tracy's not even done with him yet. It gets worse. But let's take a brief pause to talk about her romance with husband number two, because that's going down at the same time and how the hell that happens. So while she is busy fleecing this, oral surgeon, dentist guy. She also met Michael Roberts on a Christian dating site where she alleged to be a model and also told him that she had been a virgin when she met her first husband and had not been sexually active since. 
<laughs> I wonder how many people do this, you know? <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, number one, it shouldn't matter. I know that it, it might still in Christian faith. Yeah, like it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's not like it doesn't matter how many partners you've had. But like if any guy was like, so how many people have you slept with? I'd be like, ew, why do you need to know that? You know, why is that? Why is that important to you that I'm a virgin? So Michael was completely entranced to meet such a stunning, intelligent woman who was also dedicated to his Christian faith, which was super important to him. When Tracy flew out on the dentist dime, un unbeknownst to Michael. Hopefully on New Zealand Air, because that's like the best airline, you know, like. I hope, I hope she went all, like all for it. I mean, she wasn't paying for it. Why not? He proposed to her, Andy, on the very first night she landed. Did they have sex? No, not yet, because the two were married only 18 days later, oh. and I'm pretty sure that's when they had sex. Okay. I feel like 18 days, that has to be a love murder record right there. It has to be. Has to be. So yeah, she got that guy married to her in 18 days. That is a huge love murder red flag right there. It's a big old red flag. Yeah. In a later interview, Michael said that he wasn't thinking with the right head, which leads me to believe, paired with the Christian angle, that Tracy wouldn't sleep with him until they were married or he didn't want to sleep with her until they were married. In any case, uh, they definitely knocked boots, I'm sure, after their wedding 18 days later. So Tracy went back to Chicago and Michael made plans to meet her in a couple months. Like he was an entrepreneur who taught like online computer courses and might have sold computers as well. So he had to like close down his business and prepare to restart his business, get all the visa stuff, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So while he is doing that, back in Chicago, the new Mrs. Roberts is in trouble, of course, because the dentist discovered her theft and her trip to Australia on him. So Tracy's like, yeah, I know. I'm so sorry. Can I come to your office after hours to explain? And he's like, fine, I'm really pissed, but I'll wait until I talk to you before I file any charges. And the receptionist that was working that night said that she came in and she very like rudely kept asking when the receptionist was going to leave and then didn't want to see him like until basically there was no other witnesses there. Okay. And so the woman left and the doctor said that basically she was like, I'm sorry. And she had some excuses, but very quickly she turned it around to being attracted to him. And she told him that she had always had a fantasy about having sex under laughing gas. So she's like, do you want to like, you know, take some nitrous oxide and like get it on in the chair? Like, would that be something you'd be into? And of course, this idiot takes her up on it. So she gassed him up first and then apparently decided that he wasn't high enough so she put an IV in his arm and gave him a drug called Versed, which is a major narcotic that is given to patients before surgery. And he ended up waking up at four in the morning, still in the chair with his scrubs double knotted around his waist like they had been when he passed out. So he's like, okay, weird. I guess we didn't get it on, you know, because I'm in the same position. 
That was just a strange experience. Until he received a letter the next day from the book, Beautifully Cruel. Here's what he discovered. The letter, in the form of a contractual agreement, was written on the doctor's letterhead and generated by his office. Dr. Kellner had signed it, and so had Tracy. This agreement between Dr. Kellner and Tracy Richter Roberts, which means that she was married to Michael when this sexual escapade in the office took place, a patient and occasional contracted employee of Dr. Kellner is entered into in August of 1997. Dr. Kellner could not believe what he was looking at. That bitch! Whereas Dr. Kellner admits to willfully misrepresenting his ability to resolve TMJ pain that Mrs. Tracy Roberts began to experience, the contractual agreement continued with the sole intention of getting her to consent to a fictional procedure that would require sedation. Further, the contract stated, Kellner secretly intended to remove and replace articles of Tracy Roberts' clothing, fondle her breasts and genitals, take photographs of her, and make subliminal suggestions. It went on to say that he admitted to having an addictive personality from deviant sexual behavior to pharmacological. She wasn't done, though. The contract went on to describe the incident in graphic detail. It claimed that Tracy had awoken after the anesthesia mask accidentally slipped off her face during the TMG surgery to find herself clad in red thigh-high stockings, no panties, and stiletto-heeled pumps that were too small. It also said that her dress had been pulled down below her neckline to expose her breasts and that the dentist was straddling her, one of her legs up on his shoulder. Whoa. He was masturbating onto her chest, the contract said. Oh, no. Yep. The next paragraph was even more nauseating. The contract claimed that Tracy, realizing what was going on after coming out of sedation, kicked him in the balls and shoved him off of her before jumping up and pepper spraying him. From there, she got her bearings and noticed several Polaroid photographs of herself on the counter and began to cry. When Dr. Kellner realized Tracy had caught him, the contract continued, he begged Tracy not to go to the police. He then threatened her, claimed he had friends in high places that could fix everything for him. After they talked about it, the contract alleged that Dr. Kellner offered to reach a mutual agreement with Tracy that might spare her the embarrassment, humiliation, and stress of pressing charges against him. Throughout this negotiation process, there in the operating room, the contract said that Tracy held Dr. Kellner back by pointing the pepper spray at him as though it was a gun. She then took the Polaroids as the oral surgeon allegedly said he would wait for her proposal to arrive that following day. That proposal became the next paragraph of the contract. Beyond a settlement fee of $150,000, Dr. Kellner was to pay Tracy's way to a conference, an annual meeting, hotel, airfare expenses, and purchase two round-trip tickets for Mr. and Mrs. Roberts to travel to Australia for Christmas. Wow. Wow. He would also pay to replace a two-carat round diamond ring and three-carat diamond tennis bracelet, which Tracy claimed were removed during the sexual assault. Whoa. The last paragraph consisted of a note alleging how Dr. Kellner initially offered her the sum of $300,000, which she rejected. The last line of the contract showed how psychotic and devious Tracy truly could be, exposing a plan from as far back as meeting him in the Chicago hospital. Dr. Kellner wants to acknowledge that the recent payment of $18,000 to Mrs. Roberts was applied to his outstanding balance and that he had returned her high school opal and wedding band rings to her. 
I believe I was set up from day one, the doctor said later in court. The entire plot was beyond Machiavellian. Wow. Yes, Tracy never reported the alleged sexual assault to the police. The dental surgeon, in turn, failed to report what he perceived to be an extortion attempt. He never paid her. Tracy needed to go away, crawl back into the hole she had come from, and disappear. When Tracy realized the doctor was not going to pay her shakedown, she turned around and filed a civil lawsuit against him. In it, she claimed the supposed sexual assault was malpractice. Dr. Kellner would have to fight Tracy in court at some point. It was years before Michael Roberts, not until he was set to be deposed, heard anything about this contractual agreement or lawsuit. In fact, according to Michael later on, the lawsuit ended because Robert Kellner's attorney sent proof to Tracy's attorney that Tracy was lying and her credibility would be shredded to pieces during her deposition. When Tracy's attorney discussed this with Michael and Tracy, she dropped the suit. Green Chef has a meal plan for every healthy lifestyle, keto, paleo, plant-powered diets, or even if you just want to have delicious but balanced dishes. Green Chef's expert chefs curate every recipe, and with over 30 meal choices every week and the flexibility to switch plans, you'll never have to sacrifice taste for nutrition. You can enjoy restaurant-quality dishes in the comfort of your own home. Enjoy new and nutritious recipes each week that are perfect for you and the whole family. Take homemade plant-based meals to the next level with Green Chef's plant-powered options. As you guys know, both Andy and I have babies at home. Finding the time to balance work, family, and planning and cooking healthy meals can be a huge challenge. Green Chef makes meal planning and cooking incredibly easy, and we love that they have an amazing plant-powered section. Absolutely. For my family, the keto and paleo option has been incredible. And Jesse, also just not having to sit around and prep all day, it's a game changer. Yeah, or sacrificing your health for takeout for the 58th time because <laughs> you're so lazy. Seriously. <laughs> Go to greenchef.com slash lovemurder100 and use code lovemurder100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash lovemurder100 and use code lovemurder100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for us, having new babies, full-time jobs, a podcast, and just the general state of the world right now can cause major anxiety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room like with traditional therapy ever again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. 
Special offer for Love Murder listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash lovemurder. What a ride. That is, that's some balls right there. That is so intense. So intense. So apparently extortion wasn't out of Tracy's wheelhouse, however. One law enforcement official would later report that Tracy also had a nice side gig. She would meet married men online, have sex with them in a hotel or motel room. Then while they were sleeping, take a selfie with her breasts exposed laying next to or on them. And then she would tell the men that they, she was going to send it to their wives if they didn't pay her $2,500. I wonder how many times that worked. I wish I knew. I really did. That is a diabolical side business. Oh, my God. I kind of I kind of think it's hilarious, but. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually feel bad for those married guys, to be honest. That's like she's just kind of being like <laughs> the Robin Hood. <laughs> Steal from the unfaithful, you know, over here. <laughs> so husband number two, Michael Roberts, knew nothing about any of this when he moved to Chicago to be with his new wife and her young son. She did tell him, however, that her ex, Dr. Pittman, was an abusive child molester, and Michael vowed to help her win full custody of Bert no matter what it took. At the time, Michael looked at Tracy as this beautiful Christian woman who had been victimized and was trying desperately to protect her child. But after only a few months of marriage, he too began to experience her wrath. He first noticed that she could fly into total rages over small issues. The relationship turned acrimonious pretty quickly, with Michael suspecting Tracy of an affair right away and Tracy's parents taking a dislike to her new husband. To save their marriage in 1998, the Robertses moved to early Iowa, where they purchased a lovely Victorian farmhouse and an adjacent building that they turned into an office. Michael later said on Fatal Vows, it was basically like throw a dart on the map is how we came to live in early Iowa. Unfortunately for the people of early Iowa. By 2000, the couple had two small children, a girl and a boy, and Michael's computer business was thriving. This was certainly a brief, happy moment for the Roberts family. In early, the couple met a real estate agent named Mona Weedy, who sold them the building that became their office. Mona and her husband, Brett, a mechanic, had three children, a firstborn son, and then two girls. Son Dustin was a quiet, introspective, and intelligent child who had been labeled as special needs and had various diagnoses like ADHD, as well as oppositional defiant disorder, which symptoms include depression, defiance, substance abuse, and significant problems at work or school. So Dustin did not have any substance abuse issues, but they said that the rest of those symptoms seemed to fit his case. Okay. Mona like, God bless her. Poor Mona had been through it. And poor Dustin. She said that those were two of the major labels that they gave to Dustin. But it seemed like in reality, none of these specialists could actually figure out what was going on with Dustin because she said she must have taken him to 50 different doctors and gotten like 50 different diagnoses. And none of them seemed to fit his condition that well. Okay. He was really, really smart. He had a high IQ. She talked about how he could basically like put together complex Lego systems, anything that involved engineering or computer work. He was just like a total whiz kid. Okay. 
but he had interpersonal problems, defiance, problems in school. He wasn't motivated to do his schoolwork. He could not get along with his peers. And Mona definitely chalked this up to him not actually being challenged enough in school. And the school system did nothing to help him. They labeled him as special needs and put him in those classes, which did nothing to motivate him. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we're also talking like early 2000s at this point. And I think he was already 20 in 2001. So like 90s, I can't, they didn't understand anything about, you know, he was potentially maybe neuroatypical, you know, neurodivergent. I think they just didn't understand him and neither did the other kids at school. Mona was heartbroken when she found out that some of the other high schoolers were calling Dustin freak boy. Oh, it's just really sad. I really, really feel for uh, this young man and his family. I feel like it's amazing in the last 20 years what leaps and bounds we've made. And we have so far to go. We really do. But I mean, this was still, I mean, it it was only like the 90s, but it sounds like the dark ages, you know? Totally. Yeah. As a result of this like alienation, Dustin was much closer with his family. He was especially close with his mother and he was extremely antisocial with his peers. After high school, Dustin worked briefly at a Dairy Queen, which he was fired from, and then at a local ethanol plant. In 2000, with Michael Roberts' computer business expanding, Mona Weedy went to work for him in a secretarial position. She really liked the Robertses at first. They seemed sophisticated, smart, and interesting. Michael was kind to Mona and seemed like a good Christian. When Mona was dismayed to find out that Dustin had once again been fired, this time from the ethanol plant, Michael offered to mentor the young man. One of Mona's daughters also began to babysit for the Robertses as well. Michael began to take Dustin paintballing, an activity that Dustin just adored. So he was really, really, really excited to get to be drawn into Michael Roberts' world, get to go paintballing. And and this kind of replaced any sort of peer situation he had. It was like he had a friend for the first time, you know? Yep. So the only negative that Mona picked up on was that part of this like mentorship was that Michael really wanted Dustin and the Weedy family in general to become Christians. So there was a lot of proselytizing going on. Okay. And I guess sometimes that made Dustin a little weary, but the idea of paintballing and kind of having a buddy was so appealing to him that he almost didn't care. He could like look past that. And like, I guess that the Wheaties like went to church with them at one point and, you know, they weren't crazy about that part of it. But the fact that this really nice business owner man would take their troubled son under his wing meant so much to them that they were willing to give it a try, you know? Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. She also noticed that the Robertses would often fight right in front of her, which of course makes anyone uncomfortable when couples constantly fight in front of them. And one day the fight over finances in the office became so extreme that Michael excused Mona from work for the day. After Mona left, Tracy reported that she had kicked a small hole in the office kitchen wall out of frustration. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. So she's like, it was just a tiny little hole. I was just frustrated. And then Michael threw her to the ground and pinned her down while calling her a fucking bitch. 
Okay. Meanwhile, Michael claimed, and I actually saw, I think on Fatal Vows, they show like the evidence picture. There was like some major holes in this wall. Michael claimed that Tracy had actually kicked several holes in the wall and that there was electric wiring behind where she was kicking. So he restrained her so she wouldn't get electrocuted. Yeah. Yeah, so these are their two stories. Regardless of what the truth was, Tracy reported this to the police as domestic abuse and Michael was arrested. Oh my God. Yep, so he spent the night in jail and was shocked to discover that Bert had also made a statement to the police that his stepfather had abused him as well. Oh no. Mm-hmm. So Michael Roberts maintained then, and he still maintains to this day, that that was untruthful and he never hurt Bert. Unfortunately, though, for Tracy, CPS got involved and notified Bert's father, John, that there had been abuse reported in his child's home. Like, clearly they have to tell the other parent that their kid's stepfather is abusing him, you know? Yes, yeah. So Tracy tried to backpedal by having Bert go back to the police and say he was mistaken. It was actually his biological father, John Pittman, who was abusive, not his stepfather. But the damage was already done. Yeah. So this was the final straw for John. He decided to legally fight tooth and nail to get full custody of his son because he clearly couldn't remain in Tracy's erratic care. And now he had this CPS report that would suggest that Bert needed to get out of that home if his stepfather was abusing him, you know? Yes. He was by now remarried and both John and his wife wanted to save the boy from this chaos and potential abuse. Coincidentally, around this time is when the whole dental lawsuit was becoming active and it's requiring Tracy to get deposed, which again, remember we discussed how that was going to catch her in some lies. Yep. So that's going on. She's beginning this terrible custody battle of Bert and she had just finished setting up her current husband for domestic abuse. So she is in the thick of it with all of her many schemes at this point. And she definitely needed to make John look bad while also making herself look like a super mom. Authorities believe that this is when she decided to hatch the scheme that would end in Dustin Weedy's murder. So on December 12th, 2001, Tracy called Mona and told her that she was aware that Dustin had been fired and wanted to help him out by hiring him to work at the computer business on a trial basis. Now, Mona knew based on Dustin's abilities in school and at the various jobs that he'd been fired from that he wasn't exactly the best worker. And she was like, that's really sweet of you to offer. But, you know, I've been working for you guys. Like, we have a friendly-ish relationship. I wouldn't want to put that in jeopardy if Dustin's not good at doing yep. the job, you know? Yeah. And Tracy was like, no, it's okay. Don't worry. We're just going to have him make some copies. Like, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Just have him come over over the next couple days so we can get him to work. So Mona apparently was talking on the phone while Dustin was in the kitchen and he could overhear what was being said and he really wanted to work for them. He was like, yeah, mom, tell them yes, tell them, tell them. So she agreed and they planned for Dustin to stop by over the next day or two. Now, Michael was already on his business trip and later Tracy tried to claim that she was creeped out by Dustin. And in fact, Bert also testified later that his mother was creeped out by Dustin. If that was the case, why would she invite him over when she knew her husband was gone? Because she wouldn't. Yeah. 
She wouldn't. It wouldn't make any sense. So the next day was December 13th, which is the day that Dustin would be murdered. Mona left to go Christmas shopping for the day, and she reminded her daughter to wake Dustin up for his 1 p.m. orthodontist appointment. Later, when Mona was driving home, her nephew called and told her that he had been listening to the police scanner and that there was a fatal shooting that had occurred at her neighbor's house. Her first thought was that Tracy shot Michael or even vice versa. However, when she returned home, her husband, Brett, drove up in a panic saying that Dustin wasn't home and that his car was parked in the Roberts's driveway. Hmm. With their hearts in their throats, the couple immediately drove over to the scene of the crime and four cops were surrounding Dustin's car. Mona asked them if her son was inside the house and they told her that he was and that he had been shot to death. No. Brett and Mona were stunned. The anguish and the grief were immediate, but then questions. So many questions. Namely, what the hell happened in that house? So let's talk about what Tracy said happened. She said that she was running a bath for her one-year-old daughter while Bert and her other toddler son watched the movie Spy Kids in Bert's bedroom. She claimed that she had left the back door unlocked and heard noises from the first floor. She at first believed that her husband Michael had come home early and called down to him. Then she saw two white men begin to climb the stairs, so she screamed for help and then thrust the one-year-old baby girl into Bert's hands in his room. As she shut the door, Tracy felt a man grab her from behind, and then he dragged her down the hall while she shouted for Bert to lock the door and not come out. Oh my God, so scary. A home invasion is my actual worst nightmare. Yeah, so scary. (sighs) She told investigators that after that, the two intruders had a conversation that was not directed at her, and then one of the men began to choke her with a pair of pantyhose that she claimed she had left on the banister. Tracy also claimed she did not immediately recognize Dustin Weedy, which seemed odd because she seemed like she knew him fairly well. Yeah. Bert, however, said he recognized Dustin's voice on the other side of his bedroom door because he had been paintballing with him before. Tracy would change several details of the story throughout various interviews over the years. So what happened next is that she did or did not black out. And when she did or did not come to, she was able to somehow break away from two men and run to the gun safe in her bedroom. In another interview, she would say later that she heard Bert arguing with one of the men and thought that the intruders had possession of her children. So she gets to the gun safe, which is like between a wall and her bed. So it's this very narrow space. Mm -hmm. And as she attempted to unlock it, one of the men grabbed her neck from behind. And this story also changes in various media reports, various police interviews. Sometimes he's grabbing her leg, he's grabbing her waist, he's grabbing her neck. There's just some sort of grabbing going on. Somehow, though, while this man is attacking her, she managed to unlock the safe, then take the first gun out and shoot over her shoulder, miraculously landing a shot without damaging her eardrum or experiencing any flash on her cheek, which would be like a, a visible sign of like gunpowder or like some sort of bright redness on her cheek from firing so close to her face. Yep. So yeah, so somehow she manages to do all of this. Bert reported hearing a couple shots, then the sound of someone running. And then he said that Tracy entered his room and told him to take the younger kids downstairs. 
Which again, why would she tell her children to come out if there's supposedly a second attacker still at large that she doesn't know where he is, you know? Yeah, no, that's so scary. Yeah, that's so scary. It just, it defies logic. No. Plus, when he came out, Bert claimed that Tracy's hands were bound with pantyhose. So was the pantyhose used to strangle her or bind her hands? When had her hands been bound? How was she able to open the gun safe and shoot with her hands bound? She then instructed Bert to call 911. And again, why would you have your 11-year-old call instead of doing it yourself? Yeah, that's so weird. So weird. When the police arrived, Tracy very calmly told them that the house was safe. One assailant she had shot and two men had left the house on foot running between her garage and the office building. So this is from the direct report of the police officer on the scene. She said that two men had run away. So now it's three men that were in the house. So random. Yeah. So Tracy directed the police to Dustin's body saying that she had no idea who he was and then cried, oh my God, is that my husband? To which Bert said immediately, no, I think it's Dustin Weedy, which is also a super odd thing to say because later when she gives them a full report, she says that she saw the two men coming up and noticed that they weren't her husband. So (laughs) none of this makes sense. No. Tracy was taken to the hospital where her injuries were logged and photographed. But the so-called injuries didn't match up to the life and death struggle that she had outlined. Yes, she had a red mark around her neck, but the doctor didn't find any abnormalities in her eyes or eyelids. Meaning like, you know, if you're strangled, that like blood vessels pop and stuff in your eyes. Okay. Also, the range of motion in her neck was normal and there was no bruising to her neck whatsoever. All things that would have indicated being strangled, especially to the point of passing out. Yeah. Again, she didn't have any evidence of shooting a gun so close to her face and she didn't have any bruises or scratches that would have indicated a real fight like she described. Dustin's autopsy would further contradict Tracy's narrative. The medical examiner found that the trajectory of the bullets matched someone standing over the body and shooting down into the victim, not shooting up while crouched down like Tracy had claimed. Furthermore, it appeared that Dustin had been shot in two separate time frames as the blood from the first few shots had already coagulated when she shot him in the back of the head from a standing position. And the crime scene didn't appear ransacked or that there was any sign of struggle whatsoever. And of course, no sign of anyone breaking in, though she would say it's because she left the back door open. Okay. It's just very puzzling, especially when they find the confession journal in Dustin's car with a junky old PC, which we've already talked about how bizarre that was. Yeah. After Mona and Brett take a moment to absorb the fact that their son is dead, the police question them. So they're still under the assumption at this point that Tracy is telling the truth because that's what you would believe. You would take somebody at face value. Yeah, well, especially when it's like a woman by herself in a home invasion case. Exactly. 100%. You would believe the woman in her own home. Yes. You know? So they need to question the Wheaties even as they're upset because they need to find out who his friends were to find out who could be the accomplice because the second assailant is still at large. Yep. And Mona is just like completely mystified with this. She's like, I love my son, but he's a total loner. Like he doesn't even have a friend to go to the mall with, let alone commit a home invasion with. Yeah, no, that's like some real deep packed shit. Yeah, she's like, that's, this is crazy. There's absolutely no way he knew anyone who would do this with him. And as they questioned her, Mona had some questions for them right back. She's like, okay, so if Dustin was committing a home invasion, why would he park right in the driveway in in 
plain sight. I'm glad she's bringing all this up. Yeah, because she's like trying to figure out how her son could have done this, why he would have done it, why they're saying he did it, what what he was doing in the house, like other than looking for work. And so she's like, okay, was he found with a weapon? And they're like, nope. She's like, okay, was he wearing a mask or gloves or even a hoodie obscuring his face? And they're like, nope, nope, nope. So this doesn't seem at all consistent with a man entering a house to rob, kill, or rape. No. Well, life for Mona and Brett was about to get only worse because in an effort to find this second intruder, they pulled the Wheaties' phone records to see if the accomplice had called Dustin on the day of the break-in and shooting. Oh, no. Yeah. The only unaccounted for phone call was from a Jeremy Collins, a 28-year-old married military vet who drove a frozen food delivery truck. He had called the house at 4.34 p.m. and he vaguely matched Tracy's description of the second man being like the generic height and being like white, essentially. Okay. In an attempt to tie Dustin to Jeremy, they interviewed the Wheaties again to find out what the relationship had been. And Mona was forced to admit that she had been having an extramarital affair with Jeremy. I knew you were going to say that. hmm The phone call had been for her, not her son. So just think about how Brett Weedy is feeling in this moment. He is about to bury his only son. His son's killer is telling the media that Dustin is basically an attempted rapist or killer. Yep. And then he finds out that his wife was having an affair. Yeah, not great. It's not a great Tuesday. No, it's just, this is very bad. This is, of course, horrifying for Mona. They have two young girls. They have two teenage daughters at this point, which I can only imagine what they went through. It's just, this is really, 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 really painful for the Wheaties. And I feel terribly for them. Unsurprisingly, over the next few months, the weedy lives just completely imploded. They ended up getting a divorce. And as their marriage was ending, it seemed like the Robertses was actually improving. Michael recommitted himself to his brutalized hero wife and began to act extremely protective of her. Hmm. So first, he took the entire family to Australia, which is like his native country, only days after the shooting. Now, Tracy claimed to the authorities that the trip was planned well in advance. And it might have been. I mean, she might have had this all planned out. But it gave her a perfect three-week period to coach Bert before he had a chance to talk to the police upon their return. Michael also publicly offered a $10,000 reward for any information that would lead to the arrest of the second intruder. The authorities were skeptical of Tracy's story. The notebook was a confounding piece of evidence because Mona did confirm that it was written in Dustin's handwriting. But she also knew that the notebook had not come from their house. She knew that they had never purchased a pink notebook. It didn't, like, belong to her daughters. It didn't belong to her. And it certainly didn't belong to Dustin. And Dustin had never, ever, ever displayed any interest in keeping a journal or diary. In fact, he had despised any sort of writing activities in school. The last thing he would do would be to write for pleasure. I mean, she said it was literally like pulling teeth to get him to do homework. She couldn't imagine him writing for fun. Yeah, come on. 
Plus, there was no conceivable way to connect him to Dr. John Pittman or his attorney. There, They looked through everything. There was no phone calls. There was no emails. There was no contact whatsoever. So while there was some suspicion that Tracy had killed Dustin in cold blood, the DA at the time of the murder did not believe that the case was winnable. So Dustin's case just languished and eventually went cold. That's crazy. When you mentioned that it was cold at the beginning, I was like, how? Yeah, it was basically... and and. You know, they say that that's how the previous DA felt about it as far as it wasn't winnable. I don't know exactly because I don't think he made a statement to the author. Okay. You know, he might just have potentially believed Tracy. He might have believed that the journal being in Dustin's actual handwriting was too much and it muddied the waters. I don't know, you know. But they basically just let it languish. And this was devastating to the Weedy family. I mean, it just felt like no one cared about the murder of a 20-year-old kid who was different, you know? Yeah. To add insult to grievous injury, Tracy was all over the media, recounting her harrowing survival story and basically being lauded for killing their son. Oh, my God. Like, you imagine? Yeah. It would make you sick to your stomach. Yeah. It was all too much for Brett Weedy. He had lost his son his wife, his family, his sense of justice, and his family's reputation. Only a couple weeks after the Montel Williams appearance, on Thanksgiving Day 2002, 52-year-old Brett drove to the cemetery, walked to his son's grave, sat down, and put his arms around his child's headstone. And then he placed the barrel of a 22 caliber pistol against his chest and pulled the trigger. No. He still had one arm wrapped around Dustin's headstone when his dead body was discovered. That is insane. It is so sad. And that's what I mean when I tell you that Tracy is responsible for two deaths. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's just, I have chills. It's just so, I mean, this family, their reputations were run through the mud. They villainized the victim. I mean, think about what they said about Dustin. An extramarital affair came to light. I mean, I just, I can't think of anything worse she could have done to this family. Yeah. So meanwhile, Tracy's off scot-free, just living her life out there. Yeah, going on Montel Williams. Exactly. And being like applauded as a hero. And she probably would have continued to if it wasn't for Trent Valletta digging out the cold case file and convincing Ben Smith to prosecute almost a decade later. In the intervening years, some crazy-ass shit had gone down with Michael, husband number two, that eventually resulted in their divorce. Number one, Michael again caught Tracy having an affair. And he decided that he wanted to work things out and they were going to recommit to each other. And one of the things that they did to fix their marriage was participate in trust exercises. And so they were trying to like, do these trust exercises to rebuild the trust in their relationship. Mm -hmm. So Tracy one night was like, I have a trust exercise for you. Like, you trust me, right? And he's like, sure, sure, sure. And so she takes out a box of safety pins, swaddles him up in sheets like a baby. Like I'm talking exactly like a baby. Like head is out, (laughs) but then the rest of your body is like wrapped up like a mummy with your like hands at your sides. Okay. Then proceeds to pin using the safety pins, the whole sheet like up and down. So he is wrapped like a burrito and he can't escape, right? 
And meanwhile, she's like, you trust me? You trust me? He's like, yes, yes. And then she leaves him like that, swaddled up like that for 45 minutes. And he's like listening to her vacuum and like do chores around the house. And he's just kind of like, what the hell is going on? And when she comes back, she's like, okay, do you still trust me? And he's like, yeah, I've been sitting here for 45 minutes. Like what is going on? And she then takes a plastic bag and puts it over his head. What? So she starts suffocating him. And when he's like, he's like telling her like, this isn't funny anymore. Take it off, take it off, take it off. And she's like, it's okay. Just breathe shallowly. You're fine. And he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. I can't breathe. Take this thing off of my head right now. Yeah, like hyperventilating. Yeah. And so he's beginning to like almost feel like he's going to pass out when he finally managed to literally struggle so hard that he tore all of the the sheets and the safety pins. They like broke open and he finally got his hands out and he ripped the bag off his head. And he was like, what the actual fuck are you doing? And she was just like, what? It was just a trust exercise. I wasn't going to kill you. You're being so ridiculous. And just like walked out of the room. Nathaniel would file for divorce right there. He'd be like, okay, that was murder. I'm done with you. Goodbye. That was attempted murder. That was attempted murder. So yeah, there was another incident that made Michael really believe. Wait, how did these come out? Like, when did he say these to people and to who? They might have been in court cases, I'm pretty sure, because some of these were reported, like, legally and, like, depositions. So I don't know if this came out, like, in the custody agreement afterwards, like, like in certain court documents. But yeah, this came, <laughs> this came out later. But yeah, the next time, so by now he... <laughs> He was like convinced that she was trying to kill him, of course. And he was so paranoid that he started. I mean, I don't know if you're paranoid, if it's rightfully paranoid. <laughs> he started carrying around a tape recorder and just constantly recording what she was doing or saying in case he needed it for the authorities later. And so basically M. William Phelps talked about this other occasion in his book. The wine incident, a source who interviewed Michael about it later told me, It was recorded by Michael Roberts. He thinks that she's actively trying to kill him at this period, so he's carrying around a small recorder in his pocket. The sounds of this recording are chilling when the facts later came to light. Michael and Tracy were talking while inside the car in their garage. Tracy had fixed Michael a glass of wine just before. But as they chatted in the car, Michael started to feel woozy and passed out. What's eerie is that you then hear Tracy get out of the car, close the car door, and then you hear footsteps and the garage door close, my source told me. (gasps) With the garage door closed, you then hear the car start up. Michael Roberts was passed out inside the garage, the car running, the doors in the garage all closed. He woke up alone, coughing, later telling law enforcement he believed that Tracy was staging his suicide. Wow. Yeah, wild. And then after they get divorced, she tries to pin the whole murder for hire plot on him instead of John Pittman. She's got to keep her shit straight. Stick to your story, babe. If you're going to lie, at least like be gotta consistent stick to with the it. story. You got to write it down. You got to you got to go back to it. You got to reference it. Yeah. Stick to it. Stick to it. That's the only way you get through. You change it. They'll poke holes in it left and right. You show any sign of weakness. Yeah. So going back to the beginning and the investigation and with them deciding that they're going to arrest her. 
Trent and Ben come up with a theory that the motivation behind the murder was Tracy's upcoming custody hearing, as well as stress from the lawsuit regarding the dentist and her crumbling second marriage. By killing Dustin and setting up John as the person who hired the hitman, she effectively would get her son, so she'd get full custody. She would get revenge because she clearly hated John Pittman. Yeah. And she would get sympathy and support from her husband and the greater world, really. A witness named Marie Friedman told authorities that Dustin was at the Roberts house at 4 p.m. when she stopped by, something that Tracy, Tracy had like copped to like the fact that he like came over and he was acting weird, but he left right away. And that happened earlier in the day. And Marie Friedman was like, no, no, no. He was like at her house when I came by at 4 p.m. And she was like, oh yeah, that's Dustin. He just keeps stopping by. And she didn't seem like weirded out. Okay. Marie's statement also included the fact that she had been supposed to stay that night, that very night. So Marie was married to one of Michael's business associates, and the two of them were on this business trip together. They were supposed to get in really late that night. So the plan was that she was going to bring cookies over and that they were going to eat dinner and that they were actually going to like spend the night together. And when the men came home, then Marie Friedman was going to go home with her husband, you know, so they could like share a car or something. Okay. And for some reason, when she showed up, Tracy was like, no, we had a change of plans. Like, I have to do all this stuff. I have to take Bert to basketball practice. Like, you can't stay over now. And Marie was like, that's really weird. Like, you could have called me before, you know? And so basically, Trent and Ben think that essentially Tracy had been waiting for Dustin to stop by. It finally was the perfect night. And that's why she abruptly changed her plans because she was like setting it all up in her head, you know? Okay. Ben would later argue that what the prosecution believed happened was that Dustin came by to look for work as Tracy had invited him only the previous day and that Tracy somehow managed to convince him to write the bizarre note in the notebook. I mean, she could have even told him like, that's part of what the work is or I need to write this creative story that I'm working on for a book and I need you to like write it out for me while I dictate it to you. Like there's a million things she could have come up with to get him to write this, right? Yes, yeah. With that over, they believed that eventually she lured Dustin up to the bedroom with either sex or money as the hook. Or she could have even just said, there's a computer up here that needs to get fixed. Can you come up and look at it? And then she murdered him in cold blood. At some point, she had planted the notebook and the computer in his car. Although it was also possible that she had told him to put those items in his car and come back inside. She could have said, hey, I'm giving you this old computer or can you take it home and fix it? Also bring home that notebook and then bring it back to me another day or something. Like there's just so much that could have happened, you know? Yeah. With this theory, Mary Higgins' statement from the beginning regarding Tracy's knowledge of the contents of the journal and Tracy's contradictory statements and history of criminal behavior they're like, okay, we, we think we actually have enough to arrest her. Also, Mary Higgins said something really weird too, is that when she visited the family after they were in Australia, Bert was very distraught. And at some point when they were discussing the murder, he had been like, he kind of like banged his head in frustration. Like he was just like, he like sunk his head into the table and he was like, why mom? Like, why did you have to shoot him? Why did you have to go back up there and shoot him? Oh, shit. Yeah. And so Bert would later completely deny he ever said that, but Mary Higgins testified that he did. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they have all of that. They have enough to finally arrest her in Omaha, Nebraska, where she is living as Sophie Karina Baronin von Richtenhausen Edwards. Yes. Ironically, 
how they lured her out to arrest her was that they told her that she was going to meet up with an FBI agent to talk about Michael because she had been in touch with law enforcement trying to say that Michael was in bed with Julian Assange of WikiLeaks fame. Literally had been running a campaign to get him arrested for his imaginary connection to Julian Assange. Oh my God. Hell, hell hath no furry, like Tracy scorned, man. Wow. She realized after pulling up to the meetup spot that something was going down, that she certainly wasn't going to be meeting up with the FBI, and she tried to speed away, but Omaha PD pulled her over, and she was arrested for the murder of Dustin Weedy nearly a decade later. After taking her into custody, the cops found all types of IDs on her under all different names as well as a notebook with several sheriffs and cops' names and their addresses inside. Scary. Super scary. Something else weird was that according to Beautifully Cruel, when DCI arrested Tracy on murder charges during that summer of 2011 and went through all of her belongings, the hard drive on Tracy's PC was found to contain some of the most violent pornography those cops involved had ever seen. These were images, one cop told me, that you cannot unsee once they are in your head. How bad? According to one source, beyond several snuff films where girls were brutally raped and then murdered, the hard drive contained films of teenagers being violently sexually assaulted and raped at gunpoint, in addition to films about mutilation fetishes. Whoa. Tracy, of course, given the opportunity to explain, said somebody had planted those files on her hard drive. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yikesville. So Tracy's trial began in the fall of 2011, and the prosecution pretty much outlined everything I've already mentioned. To sum up, the motive was revenge in full custody of Bert, Dustin Weedy. A young man of 20 was a trusting easy mark. Tracy lured him to the house with the promise of employment, killed him, and then framed him as a hitman. Oh, so intense. So intense. So Mary Higgins testified, as did both of Tracy's ex-husbands, John Pittman and Michael Roberts. The prosecution also highlighted all of the other evidence we've discussed, plus the fact that there was no physical evidence that a second intruder ever existed. There was no unaccounted for DNA, hair, or fingerprints in the wow. house whatsoever. Wow. Yep. The defense offered a new theory that Michael had arranged the hit in an effort to kill Tracy and Bert for insurance money while setting it up to look like John Pittman had done it. They also tried to present Jeremy, remember old Jeremy Collins, yep. as the second intruder, but it wasn't believable at all because Jeremy had an alibi and had long ago been thoroughly investigated and completely cleared. There was just no absolute way he had anything to do with anything in this case other than having an affair with the victim's mother. Yeah, poor guy. Yeah, so he had to get pulled into this and his wife, or I think ex-wife at that point, had to also testify because she was his alibi. Oh my God. Can you imagine having an affair and then it just like forever for like a decade, it's just part of your legacy? Oh, this is why we should all keep, yeah, keep it in your pants. Keep it in your pants, everyone. You never know. You have an affair with the wrong person and you're stuck testifying in a murder trial. Yeah, no thanks. No bueno. So yeah, Jeremy was not, it, it was just not very feasible. 
The defense's best witness was Bert, who testified that he saw someone grab his mother as she thrust the one-year-old into his arms, and he heard sounds of the attack, heard voices, and recognized Dustin. M. William Phelps wrote that Bert came across as a son trying to protect his mother. Yet the story had changed so much that neither he nor Tracy knew what the other had said or what had been added. Both had lost control of the narrative. I really do feel for Bert. I mean, he's been under Tracy's influence since he was born. And I 100% believe that he actually, actually believes everything his mother told him. I think he believes the story he told. I think that after so many years and conditioning that you believe what you're saying. I really do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The DA basically just went through Bert's statements and previous depositions and showed him all the inconsistencies. So they'd ask him a question and he would say, um, I heard them say this. And then they'd be like, well, that's interesting because in your 2006 deposition, you said you didn't hear them say that. And he goes, well, you know, I've thought about it. And I guess that's what I, I've thought about it more. And they didn't say anything or whatever. And so they just kept doing that yeah. over and over again and proving that like everything he was saying he had changed. So it just basically destroyed his credibility. Yeah. Tracy very wisely did not testify in her own defense. In closing statements, the DA summed up the evidence against Tracy, the science, the inconsistent and evolving statements from both Tracy and Bert, the medical evidence that proved Dustin had been killed with several execution-style bullets to the back of his head, the trajectory of the bullets, and of course, the bizarre journal. The journal was not the typical musings of a young man, but instead a manifesto on how much Tracy hated her ex and his attorney. The defense had a pretty good closing, I gotta say. So from the book, here's exactly what Tracy's attorney said in his close. You folks are the people who decide what kind of community we live in, and your decision today will help shape what happens in the future. Concluding, her attorney said, how finding Tracy guilty would send a message that if someone breaks into your home and tries to assault your family, you are not allowed to protect yourself. Law enforcement and an obsessive, aggressive prosecutor looking to make a name for himself will come after you. And the kind of community you want is a community where people who protect themselves in their own house are not charged. Wow. They went there. I mean, that's pretty pretty compelling. I mean, when you're talking of to, you know, a jury in the Midwest. Yeah. I feel like I could see how that's a really compelling argument where people be like, no, of course I have the right to defend my family, you know? At 2.03 on Friday, November 4th, the jury walked out of the courtroom to begin deliberations. At 6 p.m., they were back. They had not fully made a decision yet. So at that point, the judge said that they could work over the weekend, but they didn't have to. And they indicated that they would rather go home for the weekend and come back on Monday. So the judge said that that was fine. They came back at 9 a.m. on Monday. By 11.57 a.m., On Monday, the jury was ready to deliver a verdict. So all in all, they had only deliberated for like six hours altogether. And they had made their decision pretty fast. The jury found Tracy Ann Richter guilty of first degree murder. Did not think it was going there. I know. And she was given a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Whoa. Isn't that, like, so intense? 
Whoa, what'd they say? I'm not sure. It might just be like a mandatory at the time sentencing for first degree murder. Okay. And of course, like you're shocked. Tracy was shocked. Her mother, Anna, was shocked. Bert was stunned. How old is Bert now? 20 at this point. Okay. So this was a huge blow to them. And Bert would later suggest that it was kind of bullshit that the jury got to go home in the middle of deliberations over the weekend because the judge had instructed them not to pay any attention to any like news reports, any TV, not to go online and look up the case at all. But he thinks that they didn't listen to it and they read the negative media about his mother and that changed maybe their decision process. Oh, no, really? That's what Bert believes. And, and you know, I can't say whether or not that's true. I think that the jurors have all said that they didn't do that. But of course, of course they would, you know. <laughs> yeah. How could you not? I mean, you just have yeah. to go home and not turn anything on. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what Burke claims. He claims that he believes that they're, you know, that the negative press surrounding his mother negatively affected this trial. I don't know, because, you know, all of Tracy's other behavior is so criminal and so erratic. And there's so many people that spoke against her that it seems very plausible. They might have that had she committed enough murder. ammo on their own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In a bizarre twist, Tracy's father, Bernard Richter, who at the time of the trial was estranged from wife Anna, died of an apparent heart attack on the very same day that Tracy was convicted of murder. Whoa. A very bad day for the Richter family, indeed. When Dr. Kellner, the dentist Tracy had tried to extort, found out about her conviction, he told the Associated Press, it's too bad that they don't have the death sentence down there. <gasps> Tell us how you really Ruthless. feel. Two other people who didn't mind the guilty verdict in the least were also her two ex-husbands. However, she wasn't done with them yet. Tracy and her mother, Anna, allegedly had some of Tracy's supporters create web pages slandering various witnesses who had testified against Tracy, including her ex-husbands, claiming that Michael and John were guilty of theft, perjury, fraud, computer hacking, child molestation, cool. murder, and Not even terrorism. Not cool. Very not cool. Tracy went even further in an attempt to drum up some new evidence that could land her a new trial. A convicted child rapist named James Londa became infatuated with Tracy after following her trial from prison and began writing to her after her conviction. This guy was a real gross piece of shit, too. In 2010, he had been convicted of multiple sexual assaults involving a 12-year-old girl. <gasps> He had forced the girl into erotic clothing on Christmas Eve and repeatedly sexually assaulted her with some friends. Wow. He was sent to prison for 12 years with 18 years of supervision following. When asked by the judge if he was a pedophile, Londa replied, I just might be. So Tracy starts talking and flirting with this monster. She fed him details about her case, including court filings, and even, this is truly vile, sent him a photo of small children from a magazine and wrote, kids are cute, huh? Whoa. Yeah. Why on earth would you ever send a convicted child molester photos of children? Whoa. Ugh. Yeah. Eventually, she suggested to him that his cellmate should come forward, wink, wink, if he has some new information on her case. 
She was definitely trying to solicit testimony that would secure her a new trial, but that was discovered and shut down. And I guess that Ben Smith wanted to like prosecute her on like trying to solicit false testimony, but it was in a different county from where he was. And in the county where the prison was, they were like, she's already serving life without the possibility of parole. What's the point? Like, stop. Like, we don't care, you know? So Bert and Anna still resolutely defend Tracy's innocence. Bert has a free Tracy Richter Facebook page that currently has 663 members. On the page, he claims that Ben Smith, Michael Roberts, Mary Higgins, and Mona Weedy conspired against Tracy and that she was wrongfully convicted. It's a lot of people who don't know each other. He's a, that's a lot of people. He believes that the second intruder was never found because the police never looked for him. Bert further claims that Michael Roberts was psychologically and physically abusive. And he said on this, like on this webpage, he said that his own father, John Pittman, sued he and Anna for $60 million in damages due to their slander of his name and his loss of revenue as a plastic surgeon. Um, I think that the lawsuit was eventually dismissed. So Bert has changed his last name from Pittman to Richter. So his mother's maiden name. And he visits his mother regularly in jail. A woman who did time with Tracy in prison posted on the Facebook group that Tracy was one of the most intelligent, sweet, and caring women she had ever met. She said that she misses her children daily. And I guess that the youngest two children, her children with Michael Roberts, have not spoken to her or Anna or Bert like since the conviction. So the family's super divided. Super divided. Um, The children went back to Australia with Michael Roberts after that. She does have a surprising number of supporters. Well, 663, you said? At least 663 that are on the Facebook. Yeah. Bert also posted this past May about Mike from that chapter, which is a YouTube program, and basically like ripped him to shreds for talking about Tracy, which... (laughs) Made me a little scared (laughs) to even approach this case because, you know, we try and I try so hard to present all the facts in a very like unbiased way. And I know sometimes we go hard on the murderers, you know. But yeah, I was a little nervous about this one because Tracy's family and supporters can be insanely outspoken about any negative media about Tracy. But, you know, I didn't want to not do a case, especially a listener recommended case, just because her family's a little scary. (laughs) Also, it's not like you're just saying all the facts of what happened. Exactly. I'm just saying everything that I read in the book and what I read from court records and what I saw on, you know, investigation discovery programs, all things that have been reported in the media over and over again. So this is no new information slandering Tracy at all, you know? Yeah, even like M. William Phelps faced considerable backlash from Tracy's mother, Anna, and other supporters while he was writing this book because he had reached out, of course, to the family to get a complete picture of the case. And in the epilogue, he detailed like all the ways that he objectively approached the case, how he was making sure to reach out to Anna and Bert. And I guess it got very vitriolic, especially his exchanges with Anna and he was accused of a lot of stuff, like like basically that like Michael Roberts was like paying for him to write this book and stuff. And like I said, this guy has written like 40 true crime books. Like this is his livelihood. This was not like a one-off hack writer who like <laughs> was just out to get Tracy, you know? And so he wrote in the epilogue, 
When this book is published, I will be called a liar, a writer who failed to present the real facts, someone who was taken in by Ben Smith and his cronies, fed a mountain of corrupt material, a journalist afraid to see the truth. Tracy and her supporters will make things up about me and post them online. They will attack my character and my profession. They will promote an agenda of lies about my work that will be nothing more than a bunch of bullshit. That is inevitable. But the one thing that will never, ever change here is the evidence against Tracy Richter, all of which I presented without bias in this book. Yeah. He had to write that epilogue. He did. He had to be like, hey, like, if you're reading shit about me, this is why. This is exactly what happened. I mean, in the end, I can understand that Tracy's loved ones fight for her. You know, that's good for her that she has all these people who've got her back. But I think that the facts are just against her. Yeah, a lot of facts. A lot of facts. In the Fatal Vows episode, John Pittman says something like along the lines of like, okay, so we're all lying. Me, Michael, the dentist, like all of all of us are lying yeah. and we're all conspiring against her. I don't think so. I mean- even further than that, the court system, law enforcement, you know, the media, everybody. It's all just one huge conspiracy against one woman. So anyway, oh, guys, if you haven't and you want to talk about love murder or even other ongoing true crime cases, definitely join the F, the FB, I was going to say, the Facebook discussion group. It's really fun. And I had a comment the other day that somebody wanted me to bring back the Wikipedia fun fact. Do you remember that? Are you kidding? Wikipedia fun facts. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I have to tell you, I'm really sad that <laughs> there was no Wikipedia fun fact for this case. I couldn't find anything. I just teased it. I'm just going to tell you guys, I'm going to, going forward, I'm going to try to find one. I really will, because it is so nice to end a gruesome story on a fun fact. But I have something almost as good this episode. What? Putting the love in love murder. I have one positive note about this whole saga. No matter how Tracy and her supporters might have made life difficult for prosecutor Ben Smith, in a weird way, she also brought him his greatest happiness. You see, Mary Higgins, who was the bombshell witness, became concerned about Ben as the case consumed him. Remember, he was only like a 32-year-old young guy. He was drinking, smoking, he wasn't eating or sleeping enough, so she sent her daughter Abby over to check on him. Soon, Abby and Ben became friends, and after the trial, they began dating. Now, Abby and Ben are married with children. Stop. That's really cute. (laughs) Isn't that so cute? So, yay. Go love. Everything happens for a reason somehow, huh? Yeah, I love that. In conclusion, sometimes love really does conquer all and we get a nice little silver lining here at Love Murder. I love those silver linings. You know what I don't love is being drugged with laughing gas when you're trying to fuck around with your dental assistant. Yeah, especially after she had already stole from you copious amounts of times. It's not a wise wise decision. Quick 18K, you know. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up extorted. (laughs) Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.